0: As we consider the book of Ezra, uh, we look at many of the details uh, surrounding uh, the, the, kind of just the logistical details uh, of the book that we look at every time that we uh, work through uh, uh, one of these sermons, looking at a whole book of the Bible together. So hopefully uh, you got a, a kind of a note sheet or a, a guide, a study guide for our time together tonight and you can follow along there with much of what we'll be covering here this evening. Uh, the first thing that we want to do whenever we come to any book of Scripture is to identify who's the author. Now, of course, we know that God is the ultimate author. He's the one who, through His Holy Spirit, is inspiring uh, men to write His words to His people and for His people. Uh, but there are human authors as well. The human author of Ezra is sort of shrouded in mystery, if you will, because there's no stated author there. Uh, most scholars believe, though, that the same person who wrote First and Second Chronicles also wrote Ezra and Nehemiah. Many scholars believe that that probably was Ezra himself, um, uh, the person for whom this first book is named. And, so, and I think that there's good reason to believe that as well. So if you ask me who wrote Ezra, I'll say Ezra. Um, Ezra probably also wrote Nehemiah. In the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are together as one book, but in our English Bibles, they split them into two because uh, the the leadership uh, characters that rise to the fore are different in each of those, and it just seemed, uh, uh, I, I guess, a helpful division to someone at some point. But for the same reason that First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles are really one book split into two volumes, so we can say the same thing is true of Ezra and Nehemiah. The date of the writing is the next thing that we want to, uh, to, to, to consider, the uh, date in which this book was written and also the, the dates of the events of the book. The events of Ezra and Nehemiah, and I'll refer to those two books uh, as one because they, they do flow right together. The events of Ezra and Nehemiah take place over uh, almost uh, 100 years' time in the history of the people of Israel. They take place from between 538 to 445 B.C., now, you know that when we're talking about B.C., all of the numbers count down till you get to zero. And then after that, you know, you count up. So doing the math, doing B.C. annual math is really hard for me. I don't know if that's true for you, but uh, it's just it's, it's tricky. But the events of Ezra and Nehemiah take place from between 538 and 445 B.C., The writing of the book Ezra-Nehemiah, however, was probably uh, after the end of Nehemiah's leadership in the building of the wall around Jerusalem, sometime between 433 and 424 B.C. So the events are taking place over the course of about 100 years, and then very likely all of it was compiled by Ezra, maybe around the same time that he also wrote Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, sometime around 433 to 424 um, B.C., If I were to just summarize the first half of this uh, post-exilic history uh, of Israel, by post-exilic we mean after the exile in Babylon, I would summarize Ezra this way. Ezra tells a story of the Judahite exile's return to Jerusalem from exile in Babylon or in Persia. The purpose for their return to Jerusalem, as we've been exploring on Sunday mornings, is to rebuild the temple of God in that holy city. And to reinstitute proper worship of the God of Israel there. And so in the course of this book, in the course of Ezra, the temple is rebuilt. And nearly 60 years after that, the priest, Ezra, is commanded by the Persian king, Artaxerxes, to return to Jerusalem to teach the law of God to the exiles who have returned to Judea. And in so doing, the teaching of the law by Ezra leads to widespread confession of sin and humble repentance among the people. And that's really how the book of Ezra ends, with confession and repentance of sin. There are several themes that we could trace through the course of Ezra, but there are three that I think are important for us to take note of as we study Ezra together tonight, and that I would encourage you to look at as you're studying Ezra on your own. And, these, and those major themes are these. First of all, the sovereign hand and will of God. We see God working and willing to do his purpose even through unwilling or unwitting people at times. God is accomplishing his purposes uh, in his timing in the book of Ezra. Second among these major themes is, the true, worship of the, uh, uh, is true worship of the one true God. Uh, even as we saw this morning in Ezra 4 where the building of the temple uh, the rebuilding of the temple was opposed by people who worshiped The God of Israel among other gods as well. Uh, The issue there being that uh, people who are worshiping other gods can't be a part of the building of the house of worship to the one true God. So we see that emphasis on right worship, true worship of the only God being one of the themes that drives, that rides all the way through Ezra. And then the third major theme is this genuine repentance. Genuine repentance. And that will become uh, really important as we get to the end of Ezra, particularly chapters 9 and 10, and and we'll look at that in detail in a moment. As we think about Ezra in the scope of redemption history, remember redemption history is kind of uh, the story of how God is saving sinners by his grace that is told through all of a scripture from Genesis to Revelation. It begins with the creation as God creates. Man is in His image to know, love, and worship Him. Continues to the fall where Adam and Eve, our first parents, disobey God, eating of the fruit that God had forbidden, being exiled uh, out of the Garden of Eden, um, but not without a plan from God to redeem them. Uh, and it is the work of redemption, the work of saving sinners by His grace that God is doing throughout so much, uh, well, all of Scripture from that point. On, And we look forward to the day where God will consummate all things to himself, where Jesus will return to call the church uh, to himself and usher us into eternity, where we will spend with him in the new heavens and the new earth. Ezra... Uh, kind of falls squarely around the theme of, uh, of redemption and, uh, and that, that space between fall and redemption. Because remember, the people of Israel had just been in exile uh, because of their disobedience to God, because of the result of sin. They had been cast out of the land that God had uh, put them in. But now they're coming back. Now they're being restored. Now they're being rebuilt as a people. And there's so many themes that just point to God's intention to redeem, to rescue, to save his people from sin. Now, as you read Ezra, you will find, you'll know, that Ezra falls uh, into the genre of uh, biblical literature that we would call historical narrative. Uh, It's not fiction. It's a true story, Uh, but it's, uh, it's history told. Uh, as a story. So not just a list of facts, you know, this guy went here and he did this, and this guy went here and he did this. Ezra is telling history as a story, as a narrative. You can imagine uh, almost him sitting with uh, several students or, or, you know, kids around a, a campfire, telling the story of how God rebuilt his people after the exile. Biblical uh, historical narrative like Ezra, Nehemiah, so many of the other books of the Old Testament we've already studied, often teaches through story rather than through direct instruction. We're learning through hearing a story and patterns of behavior and seeing how God deals and works with his people. So to understand what the author is teaching us in Ezra, we need to understand the plot, the themes, the characters of the story. We need to read the story as a story to see what the author is is teaching us through all of that, what God intends to teach us through all of that. And so as you study biblical historical narrative, practice asking these questions in your own Bible study. These are not new to you if you've been to uh, very many of these, um, uh, of these Sunday evening sermons. What, uh, first, ask yourself the question of books like Ezra. What is this text, what is this book telling me about God and his character? You can never go wrong asking what, what the Bible is revealing about God and his character first. Now that's a, it's a good place to start for anyone. Then ask, what does this text reveal about uh, God's relationship to his people, Israel, particularly since we're in the Old Testament. Now, if you're reading a uh, historical narrative in, from the New Testament, like the Gospels or Acts, um, you would want to ask, how, how does, what is this text revealing about how God relates to the church, how he works through his people, the church? And finally, learn to ask the question, what does this text reveal about how God deals with people on an individual basis, or maybe even a, a collective basis? How is God working redemption for all sorts of people? Ezra is a pretty simple book in terms of its outline, and it's split into two pretty clear parts. The first part is Ezra chapters 1 through 6 which uh, doesn't involve the person of Ezra at all, actually. It all takes place from 538 B.C. until uh, the years leading up to 458 uh, B.C. And in Ezra 1 through 6, you have the first wave of exiles that return to Jerusalem. The temple foundation is rebuilt. There's some opposition that arises toward those who are rebuilding the temple. And then ultimately, the temple is completed in its construction under the reign of uh, King Darius of Persia. Then in Ezra chapter 7 uh, through chapter 10, the the narrative focuses on Ezra and him as a leader. And so in chapter 7, we have Ezra departing from Babylon to return to Jerusalem. In Ezra chapters 8 and 9, we see Ezra himself praying for uh, protection from God as he's journeying back to Jerusalem. And also he begins praying about a major sin problem that, uh, that has cropped up among the people of Israel as they've returned to Jerusalem. And then chapter 10 concludes with the corporate confession and repentance of sin by all the people who are there in Jerusalem. Now you have in your uh, note sheet, and I'm not uh, uh, going to go through it tonight, but you have it just for your own edification. Uh, kind of a timeline where you have various events, the year in which they took place, and then the biblical references to those events. And I thought including that timeline for you would be uh, would be helpful, just so uh, as you're reading Ezra and Nehemiah, you can you can place these events in real time and space and history. That these are not uh, that the the history that is told to us in Ezra and Nehemiah. Is is not something disconnected from uh, the rest of world history, but something that sits right in the middle of it. These are real stories about real people and real events that took place. And sometimes it just helps to have kind of a timeline so we can place that uh, in our minds as we study God's Word. I've titled this sermon, Ezra Rebuilt. It's the same title as the sermon series that we're uh, going through on Sunday mornings, but that's really what Ezra is about, God rebuilding His people. Now, just for uh, 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 reference and to, to keep us up to speed, I'd like to read some of the last few verses from Second Chronicles, which uh, gets uh, the reader all the way up to both Israel and Judah, those two uh, halves of the divided kingdom being taken off into exile. This is what we read in Second Chronicles 36, uh, uh, um, uh, beginning in verse 11. We read, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful following all the abominations of the nations, and they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of God rose against his people until there was no remedy. We read in the verses that followed the king of the Chaldeans, would come in and conquer the people in Judea and in Jerusalem and would destroy the city of Jerusalem and the temple and take the people into exile. In Second Chronicles 36, 20, we read this. The king of the Chaldeans took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. Until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths all the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years the people who are returning to Jerusalem in Ezra are returning as a people freshly disciplined for their unfaithfulness to God and it's important that we know and 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 are keeping that in mind as to the context uh, of Ezra these are not necessarily an an innocent people returning but a people that God has disciplined for their unfaithfulness to him now to make them into a faithful people again And so as we come to Ezra, seeing God rebuilding his people, we find at least uh, four themes, uh, four uh, um, um, kind of movements, if you will, through the text. And the first is these, that God's people are rebuilt by God's hand. Put that another way, God rebuilds his people himself. If there's any one clear and consistent actor, character in the book of Ezra, it's God. There are several Hebrew leaders that are mentioned to us by name in the early verses of Ezra, Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Sheshbazar, uh, Ezra himself in chapter 7, several Persian kings that we're introduced to, Cyrus, Darius, Ahasuerus, Artaxerxes, but there's only one God who is in and through the whole history that is told to us in Ezra. It is God who brings his people out of exile. Look at Ezra chapter 1 verse 1 with me. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it into writing. In verses 2 that follow, we get the the wording of that decree where Cyrus says the people of uh, Judea can go home, can go back to rebuild the temple. And we read in chapter 1, verse 5, Then rose up the heads of the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin, the two tribes of Israel that made up the southern kingdom of Judah, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. It is God who brings his people out of exile. This is not something that they are conjuring up out of their own will, out of their own desire. It's something that God leads Cyrus to decree, and God leads the the leaders of his people to take those back. It's God who brings his people out of exile. It is God whose word is fulfilled in the course of Ezra and God who himself provides for his people. Again, in chapter 1, verse 1, we read that all of this took place to fulfill, what the, to fulfill the word of the Lord that was spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah, his prophet. In Jeremiah, chapter 29, verses 10 through 14, we read these words. Before the people of Judah were carried off into exile, Jeremiah says, Thus says the Lord, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. It's God who exiles his people and it's God who de-exiles his people. Further, we see God providing as these exiles return. God providing all that is necessary for the rebuilding of the temple to take place through the riches of the kingdom of Persia. Look at chapter 1 of Ezra, verses 6 through 8 with me. All who are about them, those who are returning, aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus, the king, also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed them in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And we get the number of all of those things, 5,400 vessels of gold and silver. All of these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Bab- uh, Babylonia to Jerusalem. It is God who brings his people out of exile. It's God who stirs it up in the heart of Cyrus to, to finance the work of rebuilding. It's God who, who provides the people who are returning to Israel with everything that they need for rebuilding the temple, doing the task that God has called them to even as the people return to Jerusalem and they reset the foundation of the temple in Ezra 3, they worship together and sing together. They say in Ezra 3 verse 11, they sing this song of call and response, for he is good, the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. You can almost hear the Tens of thousands of people gathered together uh, around the, the altar that has been freshly rebuilt uh, outside of the temple complex and, and around the, the new foundation of the temple that has just been laid. And the, hearing Jeshua, the chief priest and the Levites call, calling out, For he is good! And these tens of thousands of Israelites saying in return, For his steadfast love endures forever Toward Israel, What a worship experience there is in their worship, though, a clear eye, a clear perspective toward God. God alone, who has kept his word, has kept his promise, and provided for them. They worship God because he's been good to his promise, just as he said to Jeremiah. When Ezra returns to Jerusalem, uh, almost uh, about 80 years after this first wave returns under the reign of Cyrus, when Ezra returns in 458 B.C., 57 years after the temple has been rebuilt, Ezra goes back as one who is on a literal mission from God. Ezra himself recognizes this as the hand of the Lord himself on his life. We read in Ezra chapter 7 verses 1 through 6 these words. Ezra says, after this in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Saria went up from Babylonia. Picking up there in uh, verse verse 5 or 6. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. We read in Ezra chapter 7, verses 27 and 28, Ezra praying, uh, speaking a blessing to God. He says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king, King Artaxerxes, to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Who's the one acting? Who's the one most active, most involved in what's going on in Ezra? It's God. God who leads Cyrus to make this decree. God who stirs it up in the heart of his people to return. God whose hand is upon Ezra, his servant, to go back and teach the law to the people. There's certainly far more that we could say about all of this, but as we've seen so many times, even throughout our study of God's word in this particular sermon series on Sunday mornings, we find the wonderful work of the sovereign hand of God accomplishing his purposes through his people and for his people. Though his people sin in his sovereignty, God provides rescue for him. Though wicked people conspire against God's people, God ensures the success of his people in all that he's called them to do. And even though pagan kings act in their own self interests the sovereign God of the universe is the one who is superintending their decrees for his own glory. I love this God. Nowhere in my mind is the constancy of God's sovereign hand and provision more clear than over the 80 years of opposition to the building of the temple that we see described in sort of summary fashion in Ezra 4. All of Ezra chapter 4, even as we saw this morning in worship, is focused upon this, the opposition that, that systematically and over decades is upon the people as they're seeking to rebuild the temple. Ezra states that this opposition continued through the reign of several Persian emperors through systematic manipulation and bribery by those who opposed God's people. And yet, in the course of those 80 years, the temple still gets rebuilt Against all human odds, God ensures the fulfillment of his purposes. Yes, friends, God rebuilds his people by his own hand. We see that in Ezra. But secondly, we see what God builds his people for. God's people are rebuilt for worship. This truth rings out in Ezra, I think, more loudly than any of the, any of the other things, and, and certainly most loudly through the purpose for the exiles' return to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple that was previously destroyed. As scripture illustrates for us God's intention has always been to dwell among his people and to be worshiped by them. And the temple would be the place where that would happen for his people in the Old Testament. Uh, explore with me, if you will, just briefly, this wonderful theme of God's presence among his people through worship as we trace it through the, through the Old Testament in particular. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are there in the garden in the presence of God, walking with him in the cool of the day. And in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin against God. They disobey his only command, incurring upon themselves his judgment, but also his mercy. And the day that they ate the fruit, God said they would surely die. And yet on the day that they eat it, they don't die. Though one day they will So they're judged by God as they are exiled out of the garden, eastward out of the Garden of Eden. And yet God also gives them his mercy in giving them skins of animals to be covered with. When God delivers his people out of slavery in Egypt, several millennia after this uh, tragedy with Adam and Eve, God instructs Moses to build a tabernacle, a tent of meeting where his people will worship him. The entrance of the tabernacle is to open what direction? Do you know? Eastward. The same direction that Adam and Eve were exiled, you see. So it's supposed to be a place, the tabernacle is to be a place where sins are atoned for and where God will cause, cause his presence to dwell among his people as they return to worship and fellowship with him. During the reign of Solomon, the wool and leather tabern- tabernacle was replaced with a gold and marble temple, a temple which God allowed to be destroyed because his people profaned his worship by polluting his house with idols to false gods. And he again sends his people out into exile. Which direction? Eastward, to Babylon. And so when God brings his people out of slavery, out of, out of exile in Persia, what does he call them to do? To build a house for worship. And so in Ezra, we find God rebuilding his people for this purpose, to worship him. That he might be present with them in their worship. The genealogies that we get in Ezra chapter 2, which I I won't uh, uh, stumble over my words to read all of, but the genealogy in Ezra 2, or the list of people who return, show that God has kept the line of priests and temple servants alive through all of their decades in exile uh, so that he would have people ready to lead uh, the the people of Israel in, in, in worship together. And when the people are deterred, when they are uh, uh, dissuaded from building by their adversaries, it is God who sends prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to support and encourage his people to continue, be about, uh, to continue to be about the building that he's called them to do. In the midst of opposition, God decrees and superintends through Darius that the work shall finish unhindered. For it is his worship, it is God's worship that is at stake. And it is his uh, deserved worship that he desires among his people and uh, among all the peoples of the world. So we read in Ezra chapter 6, verses 14 through 18, these words. The elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Ido. They finished their building by, de- by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. There are lots of great ways that the people of God in the Old Testament can worship him But there is one way that seems to stand out the most from Exodus uh, onward, and that is in the celebration of the Passover. There's no greater way for the people of Israel to worship God, their rescuer, their redeemer, the one who called them out of slavery, the one who now brings them out of exile than to celebrate the Passover together. That great meal that was given by God during the last of the plagues in Egypt when the people of Israel were slaves uh, there to the Egyptians. It's a meal in which the blood of an innocent lamb was spread on the doorposts of a house to indicate that all who were under the blood of that lamb would be spared from God's wrath. That meal, that wonderful celebratory meal of God's provision, of his passing over his people while they were slaves in Egypt, that meal is celebrated again for the first time in multiple decades here in Ezra chapter 6, where the people corporately worshiped God, their rescuer and redeemer excuse me, Ezra 6, verses 19 through 22, says this, on the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept Passover. That's a big deal. It's easy for us to read over verse 19, like, yeah, yeah, Passover, whatever, that happens all the time. But remember that Passover hadn't been practiced for decades, hadn't been celebrated for decades. And so on the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept Passover, for the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. God rebuilds his people for this purpose, to worship him in truth and in righteousness. Third, we find in the course of Ezra that God's people are rebuilt through God's word and through the ministry of God's word. As we've noted already, it isn't until chapter 7 that Ezra himself comes onto the scene of the book that bears his name. Ezra, the scribe and leader who wrote this book and Nehemiah, and probably Chronicles as well, arrives to Jerusalem in 458 BC, uh, 60-some years after the temple has already been uh, completed. As a scribe, though, Ezra would have been an expert in the law of God, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. You may be thinking of the scribes and Pharisees that came and questioned Jesus during his earthly ministry. Ezra was among those, but he's the best sort of those, if you will. And Ezra himself felt the responsibility as a scribe, as an expert, as a teacher of God's law for ensuring that God's people knew what he called and commanded them to do. In fact, this is precisely what we read of Ezra and about his return to Jerusalem. In chapter 7, verses 10 through uh, 26, we read these words. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and his rules in Israel. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned, learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the, law of, God of, uh, of the law of the God of heaven. Peace. And now I make a decree that anyone of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go with you to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God which is in your hand. We read in verse 25 of chapter 7, And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, you are to appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people of the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them, you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. It's quite something to think that a pagan king would instruct a scribe, a teacher of God's law, to go back to his people in order to teach them the law that the pagan king himself had really no interest in following. But again, we see God's sovereign hand at work, right, through Artaxerxes, who is commanding Ezra to go and teach the people the law that they may have forgotten during their time in exile. And so as Ezra Ezra returns to teach the people, he finds among them that many of the men who had returned to Jerusalem and the surrounding towns had in the intervening, intervening period between when the temple had been completed and Ezra's arrival, many of the men of Israel had taken wives for themselves from among the peoples of the lands, the text says. The returning exiles have married women who, like the adversaries of Ezra 4, had intermingled the worship of Yahweh, the one true God, with the worship of other false gods which is itself a direct violation of Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 through 5. Deuteronomy 7, 3 says this, "...you shall not intermarry with them, the people of the surrounding lands into which you are going, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly." So Ezra gets back to Jerusalem and he sees the people of God who have returned directly violating this old command that God had given to his people in Deuteronomy before they ever conquered the promised land to begin with. So Ezra sees this terrible situation, this, this widespread sin among the people of Israel and he laments this, this problem and he says in chapter 9 verse 10 these words, Now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commands which you commanded by your servants, the prophets. We have forsaken your word. We We have gone against what you have commanded us to do. The point that Ezra would have us to understand is this. God's people are to be a people, not only who worship God in truth, but who know and obey God's word, who know what God has said and who continue to build their lives upon the unchanging word of God. The reason that the people had been sent into exile in the first place was for their disobedience to God's word, and now by God's word, Ezra will lead the people to faithfulness. God's people are rebuilt through His word. There's this wonderful scene in uh, the book of Nehemiah, which I'll uh, I'll save the details for the next time. I don't want to you know spoil it now, but where the law of God is read publicly. In the midst of all of the, the people there that are gathered in Jerusalem as the wall around the city is rebuilt. And just the rejoicing and repentance and, 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 and return to faithfulness that God causes among his people as his word is read. God, God's people are rebuilt through his word. And finally, we see this in Ezra, that God's people are rebuilt by God for repentance. They're rebuilt for worship, but they're also rebuilt to be a repenting people. Just as the word of God reveals this new disobedience of the returning exiles, marrying wives uh, who who worshipped other gods, so also does God lead his people to repent of this sin. The whole of chapters 9 and 10 of Ezra is focused on the problem created by many of the men who had returned and married unrepenting, idolatrous women from among the surrounding peoples. Ezra then, this great and godly leader, leads the people of God in Jerusalem, right right there in the shadow of the temple as it's been rebuilt, leading the people to repent. We read in Ezra 9, verses 13 through 15, these words, "'After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds,' Ezra is praying and saying, "'and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, "'have punished us less than our iniquities deserved "'and have given us such a remnant as this. "'Shall we break your commandments again "'and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations?' Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Those are poignant words, not just for the men who were complicit in the sin of marrying Uh, idolatrous wives, but these are poignant words for every sinner who recognizes how they have rebelled against a perfect and holy God. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, Lord, for none can stand before you because of our sin. Confronted with the reality of their sinfulness and the way that it has very clearly broken God's law and his intention for his people, the men of Jerusalem respond the best way they possibly can. They respond with repentance, turning from their sin. One leader among them named Shechaniah speaks for the whole of Israel to Ezra, a word of corporate confession. Listen to how he confesses the sins of the people in Ezra 10 verses 2 and 3. Shechaniah the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. He says, We have broken faith with our God, and we have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law." Shekinah leads the people. He speaks as one voice for the people that what they want to do, confronted with their sin, is to repent. So then, as we read in Ezra 10, in pouring rain, all of the men of Israel gather together to Jerusalem to renew this covenant, to walk in repentance with God. Their repentance, the the way they go about repenting, appears really harsh at first. They're to put away, they're going to divorce their foreign idolatrous wives and even some of the children that that these uh, foreign wives had borne for them. Knowing that God is, in several places, uh, one who says he hates divorce, that, that divorce is not anything that, that God ever wants for his people or for anyone, because marriage is a picture of the union that Christ has to the church. To have a marriage broken this way is not anything that God desires. And so we see uh, this divorce that is, uh, this, this act of divorce that's put forward by these repenting Israelites, and we go, what is going on here? How is this Okay. We need to notice here in Ezra 10 that repentance this way is not prescribed by God. God is not commanding these people to divorce their wives. But this is repentance that is undertaken willingly by the people themselves. They propose it. They know that in marrying these unrelenting, idolatrous women, that they have endangered the right worship of God. Just as Solomon married so many of these women of the people of the lands and incorporated and allowed them to incorporate worship of false gods in the temple and was destroyed for it, so now these people who are returning from exile realize that they as a people cannot repeat the sins of Solomon. Ezra 10 is for us a descriptive passage about what happened, not a prescriptive passage about what should always take place. So we should not read Ezra 10, and and for those of us who are believers, who are married to unbelievers or non-believers, we should not then seek to divorce those that we are married to. Paul says very clearly in 1 Corinthians, don't do that, right? He says, if you're already married and your spouse is not a believer, but they don't have any problem with you following Christ for the the sake of the gospel and for the sake of, uh, 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 of, of Christ himself, don't be divorced, but continue in that marriage so that your spouse may be uh, may be redeemed by your witness uh, in, in their life. So what we see in Ezra 10 is not prescriptive, but descriptive. It's just telling us what happened, not what always needs to be the case. But let us not ignore the grace and the care that very likely was attending these divorces. The whole ordeal of judging in every case of idolatrous marriage takes the leaders of Israel nearly three months to consider. And just over 100 men are listed at the end of chapter 10 as sinning this way. So they take three months to, to, to judge the cases of these uh, 100 men or so and the wives that they'll need to be sending away. The divorces were handled at a rate of about two per day. So you can see that they're, they're putting a lot of time and mental effort and energy into doing this the right way. Very likely, these divorces included negotiations between uh, the, the man the, of Israel who's divorcing his wife and the fathers or the brothers of the women that they were divorcing. The, the, the men of Israel who were putting their wives away were very likely providing monetary and material security for the caretaking of the women and the children that they were sending off. The situation is far from ideal, and it's certainly not a pattern to be repeated. But it was, in the days of Ezra, a sign of real and sincere repentance. People of Israel being serious about not wanting to return to sin that had destroyed them in the first place. This would now be a people who, delivered by God for his worship through his word, would be a people who would live together as a kingdom, who cut ties with the sins of their fathers for the sake of God's glory in the future. This would be a different generation. This would be a different people. This would be a people who, when they recognized their sin, would repent of it quickly. And that's how Ezra ends. It's kind of a strange way to, uh, to end this part of the history with all of these people, all of these women and children being sent off. But again, we need to recognize that these were women who continued to worship uh, other false gods, even as they uh, incorporated that in their worship of Yahweh. They were not repentant and, uh, and, and uh, willing to cut off uh, their false gods to worship God alone. So where is their hope? In Ezra, hope for seeing how how Ezra points to Christ. That's the purpose of of these uh, sermons as we're looking through uh, or looking at whole books of the Bible is to see how they point us to Jesus. Jesus, who's the center of Scripture, Jesus, who is the the central figure in all of God's Word. How do we discover Christ in Ezra? There's so many different signposts I think to Jesus, the Messiah, that we can find in this book. But I want for us to see how the four themes that we've explored uh, come together for us all at one place, which is at the cross of Jesus. As we said that it is God who rebuilds his people by his own hand, we see Jesus, who is God in the flesh, who against the evil intentions of sinful men accomplishes the will of the Father at the cross. God's sovereign hand working through, even even in the midst of, even in spite of the evil intentions of wicked men to crucify his son, God working through their sinfulness to provide salvation. We read in Isaiah 53 verse 10, uh, these words coming true at the cross, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, his servant. He has put him, Jesus, to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Whose desire was it that Jesus would die for sins at the cross? God's. Jesus, God in the flesh, against the evil intentions of sinful men, accomplishes the will of the Father. We see also that just as God rebuilds a people for worship, so also Jesus, the Son of God, rescues us to worship God. Just as the people of Israel celebrated the protection of God's wrath under the blood of the sacrificial lamb at Passover, so also does Jesus the most perfect uh, most perfectly put to rest the wrath of God as our Passover lamb. It is Christ who takes the wrath of God for our sins and makes us able to worship God without fear. We read in Revelation Chapter 5, verses 11 through 13, these words, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might. And honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. And all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. What are these but words of worship sung in eternity to Christ our Passover lamb who gave his life that we might worship him. Even as God rebuilds his people through his word, so also Jesus, the incarnate word of God, draws us to the Father as he himself is lifted up on the cross. Indeed, as Ezra brought the word of God to the people, they found themselves reorienting their lives around it and, and around obedience to God himself. So also Jesus says in John twelve thirty two and 33, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. John tells us that he said this to show us by what kind of death he was going to die. What's the purpose of the incarnate word of God being lifted up in front of people? To draw all people to himself. To say, I am the way to the Father. I'm the way to obedience to God who made you that you might know, love, and worship him. When I am lifted up as that Passover lamb, the incarnate word of God for all to see, I will draw all people to myself. We are meant to be a people who are built around the word of God. Yes, the written word of God, but most especially the incarnate word of God, Jesus the Christ. And just as God rebuilds a people for repentance, Jesus the righteous one who never sinned, who had no need to repent, dies and is raised again to be received by repenting people. Jesus came from his earliest days as he's teaching and preaching in his earthly ministry. Matthew four seventeen, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's very clear that those who follow Jesus will be a repenting people. In Luke chapter 5, verse 32, Jesus says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And to what? To repentance, to turning from their sin. In his dying and in his rising, Jesus makes salvation possible to, the, uh, to those who turn from sin to embrace him with faith. Peter preached salvation through faith in Christ and repentance on that first sermon at Pentecost. In Acts two thirty-eight, we read this. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Who is it that receives the gift of the Holy Spirit? Repenting people, people trusting Jesus, the incarnate word of God. Jesus further taught that repentance is life for the repenting one. And it is cause for celebration for all who know the joy of turning from sin to embrace God and faithfulness again. We read in Luke 15, verse 7, Jesus says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. God builds his people by his own hand. He builds them for worship. He rebuilds them through his word. He makes them to be a repenting people. And all of these themes find their perfect fulfillment in Jesus the Christ, who hung on the cross, shedding his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, that we might be a people rebuilt by God for worship through the incarnate word as we repent of our sins and embrace him by faith.